Good morning, church. You know, 9.30 service, folks. I would think you'd be a little more awake than that. Did we make the coffee too weak this morning? Is that what happened? I've had roughly 44 ounces of coffee this morning already myself, so <laughs> settle in. Make yourself comfortable if you have a snack. Uh, you might need it at a certain point. Just kidding. Just kidding. I'd like you to open your Bibles, though, in Ephesians chapter 4. And just hold your place there. As you're opening your Bible, remember that the name Ephesians, that strange name, is actually the name of a city known to Paul, where Paul preached the gospel, where a church of Jesus was born. A strong church, a loving church, a church with many gifts, but also a lot of problems. It was, for instance, to the Ephesian church that Paul had to say, don't get drunk with wine anymore, instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. That gives you a snapshot into the reality of the, the grittiness, the difficulty, the messiness of these first Christian lives. They had been far from Jesus, but now they are collectively part of His body. He loves them. He saved them. And we've been in a series that has not taken us as our custom is through a book of the Bible, but a four-part series telling you in the simplest terms I can muster how to know God for yourself. It's a really simple series. You're welcome to look it up on, on YouTube or the podcast if you've missed any of that. I told you in the first week that you have to read your Bible. That's God's Word to you. That is God speaking to you. Then because God loves you, you have the privilege not only of hearing from Him, but you actually have the childlike privilege of speaking back to your heavenly Father and praying to Him directly. Jesus taught us to pray our Father in heaven. You not only get to listen to Him, you get to speak yourself to Him, knowing that you will be loved and heard and understood even when you're wrong or misguided and don't know how to pray. And then I told you last week that reading your Bible and praying, as essential as they are, can actually all be void and useless to you if you don't actually obey God. In other words, hearing from Him and talking back to Him mean little if you don't actually put into practice what you heard from Him, regardless of the clarity and the truthfulness of His Word. If you don't put it into practice, it won't make any difference to you. It will remain true. It will always be helpful. It will always be a blessing. But unless you appropriate those blessings by obedience, it won't practically do any difference for you. And then I thought the series was over. When I planned this series, I thought three weeks. Reading your Bible, praying, doing what your Bible says and what you've been talking to your Heavenly Father in prayer about. I nearly called the series right there, but as I studied, I realized that that would have been a massive mistake, and the mistake is based not on a lack of biblical understanding, but on the weight of cultural formation. I almost did a very American thing. Here's what I mean. Here's an American quote for you, and I'm going to lean on you English majors to help me identify who said this, okay? Okay. If a man does not keep pace with his companions, perhaps it is because he hears a different drummer. Let him step to the music which he hears, however measured or far away. English majors, anybody know who said that? Thoreau. And that's as American as it gets. You see some guy that's out of step with everybody else, he's doing his own thing. 
It's become an expression. You're marching to the beat of a different drummer or a different drum. That's as American as it gets. It could only be more American if somehow an, a, a bald eagle pronounced that poem at a baseball game. That's as American as it gets. I promise you, I used to study this stuff. You won't find that, the version of that proverb, of that saying, in too many different cultures around the world. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I just, I've been here back in the United States for nearly 20 years with my family, though I grew up outside of the United States, and that means that I always have a different cultural lens through which to look at the world. It may be wrong or it may be right, but it's a different perspective. It was surprising to me that I'm much more of a gringo 20 years later than I was when I first returned in 2005. I nearly left this sermon out of the series. Because if you think about it, reading your Bible privately, praying to God privately as Jesus told you to do, and then personally choosing to obey your heavenly Father, those are all well, true, good, biblical, vital things. Please do them. But they're all individual. And what I need you to see this morning is to take away for just a moment, as best you can, the extremely individualistic American lens through which we inevitably read the Bible, and understand this. The New Testament is always saying we, but we tend to hear I. That's actually buried into our language. We don't have a plural form of you. You can be one person, and you can be a thousand people. Well, we have perfected this in the South. You know the, you know the plural you? Y'all. But it sounds a little country, and here in coastal Orange County, sometimes people are a little embarrassed to say, y'all, where are you from? And that whole 714 forever kind of vibe kicks in, and nobody wants to engage in that. Never have I met if people anywhere who are prouder to be where they're from than this little community right here. We'll pay extra to put HB on our license plates just so people know. You could have bought a frame, but no, you had to pay extra to put it on the frame just so they know. So no, probably y'all's not going to catch on in coastal Orange County. But I want you to hear the two things I'm saying. Same as me, you've been culturally conditioned by culture as well as innate sinfulness, uh, selfishness that is a part of every human heart of hearing all that the Bible says to you individually. And missing, if you could read it in Greek or even in Spanish, that the New Testament is rarely addressing individuals, is almost always addressing local churches and groups of disciples. That's what we're reading. We're reading a letter to a local church in the city of Ephesus. If it were written in these days, it might be to the Californians, or I don't even know how to say the name of our town. We'll use a weird one that I don't particularly like, Angelinos, okay? It's written to a church. Another truth I need you to know before we actually read the Bible is this. The congregation that's being addressed here, and our congregation, is the body of Christ, and the body of Christ same as yours, 
was designed to mature, to develop. It was designed to grow. And the premise of this sermon, which I hope to show you from Ephesians chapter 4, is simply this. To know God, you need more than individual private practices, however valuable and holy they may be. To know God, we need one another. And I'd like you to I'd like to answer this question for you from Ephesians chapter 4. How is our individual spiritual growth connected to the congregation? You will answer to God for yourself, for your Bible reading, for your prayer, for your obedience to Jesus. But while you're here, as Ephesians 4 is going to show us, it is decisively, sacrificially the will of Jesus that you live your Christian life not in private isolation, Not in a monk-like existence that reads the Bible and prays and obeys whatever you find there. No, the intention of Christ was to form from ordinary people with a lot of problems, a lot of hang-ups, and a lot of sinful inertia that keeps them from readily obeying Jesus. He put us together because we need one another, and if we will do collectively what he says, we will grow individually. Read with me Ephesians chapter 4, please. Paul says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, because again, Paul's preaching had cost him his freedom. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you, and that's plural, if you'll indulge me. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge y'all. See, this is why I won't do it, because people laugh. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge all of you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Notice how we are to live together. This can't be obeyed individually. This takes the fellow members of your local church. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Look, the emphasis is on our shared unity, that we together are one. Verse 4, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you all were called to The one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Do you hear how collective that is? Here's the point. The effort of staying united teaches us to put God's grace into practice. Go back up to verse 2. Paul says that walking as a Christian, walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, will require things in relationship, not with God, but with one another. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How many of you enjoy practicing humility? One of my best friends says it takes a lot of humiliation to be humble, and he's right. Bearing with one another. Do you enjoy bearing with your spouse, your kids, your friends? What that means is that they're they're wrong or they're needy or they require something of you, and you put up with it. You bear with it. You don't resent it. 
You put your shoulder under their responsibility, under their need, and you stand up with it. What about gentleness? Does that come easy to any of you? Where really your rights have been trampled on and you've been wronged? But the appeal here to keep the unity, to show that we all belong to God, that we all stand in one faith, that we share one baptism, that we have a Father who is over all of us, in charge of all of us, and in each one of us, how many of us like to engage with other people in a gentle fashion? Here's what's much more common. I'm going to let them know. Here's a very American saying. I used to study part of my seminary education. I used to study the Proverbs of other nations, other cultures. I haven't heard this one anywhere except the United States. It's a baseball thing. I call them like I see them. Okay. That's actually your right. God bless you. Strike up the band. Let's sing God Bless America together. Or maybe just you, if you're a better singer than the rest of us. But I call them like I see them. That individualism is rooted so deep in our heart and expressed so masterfully in our culture. I mean, we produced the automobile and then we built giant interstates so that people could take their affordable cars anywhere they pleased. And all you need to transit freely through this country is to be in this country. It's an extraordinary amount of freedom, and what we have done collectively is make it so individual that these Bible verses don't immediately leap out to us as our Christian responsibility. Listen to it again. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been call called with all humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, and the purpose of all of those Christian graces showing all of that Christian character is this, we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What's my point? The effort of living that out, not with Jesus because He's always perfect, but with living that out with the imperfect disciples of Jesus around you, that teaches you and grows you like little else can. It's not an isolated factor in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. You ever been in a church like that? It's wonderful when it exists. We've had moments of it. We've had seasons of unity that only Jesus could produce in this church, and it's beautiful. It's something like heaven on earth to have people from so many different backgrounds, so many hang-ups, so much sin, so much brokenness all come together because Jesus has individually saved each one of us and then by His grace put us together in His church. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Would you like to be part of a church like that? Me too. And increasingly, we are. That's the amazing thing. If you read the paragraph of this context, in context, if you read this verse in its surrounding paragraph, what's happened in the Corinthian church is they've each picked their favorite preacher, and they're basically big-leaguing each other over their individual preferences. Oh, you like Paul? Yeah, Paul's okay. More of an Apollos guy myself. You know, Paul's, he's, he, I don't know, Apollos just has a certain way. I just... 
I want to listen to him. The worst among them, I think, based on knowing church as I do, there was a group that said, we're just with Jesus. And they, they may have been the best and the most sincere among them, but Paul lumps them in with those doing the fighting. So I think they were probably the most pious and self-righteous of the bunch. Oh, you guys like Paul? Not us. We'll just stick with Jesus. Thank you very much. Oh, you self-righteous turkey. <laughs> it's not isolated. Look, in the second letter he wrote them, he said this, 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. Read the last phrase with me. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Let's dwell on this for a moment. You ever done the hard work of restoring a broken relationship? Did you like it? You like the outcome. The process of restoring a broken relationship, meaning that one or both sides forgot to be humble, forgot to bear with one another, forgot to act in love, and sin broke that relationship apart, to aim for restoration is hard work. That's when you'll grow up. Paul says, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. These are all the evidences of Christian maturity. And Paul says, he makes this amazing promise, if you will set your mind on restoration, on comforting other people, on agreeing with one another, if you set your mind on living in peace together, here's what's going to happen. The God of love and peace will be with you, of course. There's no division in God. There's no animosity and resentment in the Trinity. There's nothing but love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If we are in that fellowship, if we are in His family, if we aim to live the way our Father always does, of course we will experience His love and His peace in a whole new way. And it's possible. In fact, I've seen it happen here. If you're new to our church, I just have to tell you, and I'd like to encourage those of you who are here through it, the pandemic was absolutely awful, but in many ways it was our church's finest hour. Because we had a very, very, very wide array of opinions, just like every group of Americans collected anywhere. And it was a hard season. I was talking to pastors all around the country because we were all trying to figure out, guess what, seminary, as long as it is and as much as it costs, did not mention a pandemic not even one time. <laughs> I actually sent a little bit of a terse email to one of my mentors and said, hey, 98 units in a master's degree, y'all never mentioned this. He said, it's in the curriculum now. I go, yeah, now, thanks. Now that it's over, the after-action review will tell somebody else what to do. I'm living it now. We didn't all agree with each other. We had differing views, but what triumphed over that and kept us together and kept us serving and kept us loving and bearing with one another and choosing sometimes quietness and patience rather than expressing our deeply held constitutionally protected opinion was Jesus. It was the God of love and peace. It was the fact that we share one faith and one baptism. It's that God is in charge of all of us. It can happen, and my point here is this. The effort of staying united like that grows us up. The spiritual effort of keeping the body together makes its individual members grow. This is a vital, vital distinction, and again, this is a 
something that we swim, if we're going to be faithful Christians, we're going to swim upstream, contrary to the current of culture. If the local church is envisioned and packaged as a service organization, staffed and run by professionals, with the help of a few large-hearted volunteers, we'll never fulfill the purpose of Jesus for our church. Because what Paul's going to tell us next is this, the effort of serving one another actually fulfills Christ's purpose. Look with me in verse 7. And I want you to notice a pivot, a change in Paul's thinking. Verses 1 through 6 have been all about unity. It's by humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love we are, verse 4, to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Because we have one body, there's one spirit, we are called in one hope that belongs to our call, we have one Lord, we have one faith, we have one baptism, one God and Father of all. Hear how mono that is? You're together, you're in the same family, you were all saved, you were all loved the same way. Stop being high-minded, stop being divisive, stay together because you share so much. In verse 7, he changes But grace was given to, what's the next phrase? Each one of us. He's now going to say, having affirmed the unity of the body of Christ, which was designed, just like your physical body, to stay together, and you've got a crisis if your physical body is not together. Paul says that the grace of Jesus is to give every individual, each one of us, certain kinds of gifts which will be different depending on what he chooses for each of us. Verse 7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now it's going to get a little deep. Paul's going to quote the Old Testament. I'm going to read it to you and then I'm going to explain why. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says... And you notice there's quotation marks there. The reason is Paul's dialing it all the way back to his Old Testament, and he's quoting a psalm. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave, what's it say? Gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended, this is all about Jesus, is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, what is all of this about Jesus descending and Jesus ascending? And why does Paul bring the Old Testament into it? You can take this as a rule of reading. Anytime a New Testament writer quotes the Old Testament to make his point, he's trying to show you something vitally important. He's actually connecting his holy inspired thinking and writing to something that God wrote centuries and centuries earlier. At the time Psalm was written, I don't think anybody could have reasonably foreseen that that Psalm was actually talking about Jesus, but it was according to Paul. And here's what he's saying. Jesus descended from glory all the way down into the earth. In fact, this is a reference poetically. Paul's saying Jesus humbled himself so much that he descended not only to live among us, but he was actually placed in a grave on the earth. Did he stay there? 
No, he rose again. He ascended. He rose from the grave and returned to the glory from which he came. And as he went, like a conquering hero, he gave gifts. He left gifts behind him to his followers. That's why it says in Ephesians 4, 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. What that means is that Jesus, through the power of his resurrection, and not only his resurrection, his ascension to the Father has given each individual Christian, no matter how ordinary, no matter how ugly their past no matter how limited their intelligence, their ability, their resources on this earth, no matter how little the world thinks of them, Jesus, by the power of his resurrection and ascension, has gifted each Christian, to make that personal, has gifted each one of us with something that he intends for us to use to serve other people. You may be an introverted person who has never been called on to serve other people, that might make you feel incredibly uncomfortable. You might envision that that involves being up here sometime with a mic in your hand. It may or it may not, I have no idea, but whoever you are, if you're a disciple of Jesus, according to Ephesians chapter 4 verse 7, the resurrected and ascended life of Christ gave you gifts, and the point of those gifts is that you should use them to serve others. Look at verse 11, and he gave, that's that same gifting language, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. I'm actually going to give you some time to read on your own because these two verses I just read to you are so overlooked that most churches in the world do not function the way they should. Verse 11 speaks of a particular kind of people that God would give to the local church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. I personally am in that list on the last two words. I'm a pastor, which means a shepherd, and I'm actually functioning something Jesus called me to do right now, just like dozens of people do in this church, in small groups and Sunday school classes and in-home Bible studies, I'm teaching. But those publicly visible, appointed by your grace and the grace of Jesus, trusted public leaders are doing what they're supposed to do, but I want you to look in verse 12 and read to yourself if you can see what the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers are meant to be doing. Read verse 11 and 12 to yourself, and let's figure it out. What is the purpose of the publicly visible leaders of a congregation according to verse 12? There's a single word that we are all, all we leaders are supposed to be doing. What are we supposed to be doing according to verse 12? We are supposed to be equipping. Equipping who? Who's that? Did you hear it? It's you. A saint doesn't mean a perfectly sanctified holy person. 
A saint is a biblical term that just means that somebody has been set apart for God, that God put his name on and said, this kid right here, he's mine. That's my son. That's my daughter. He belongs to me. He's in my family. There's a lot of reasons, including a misfortune of grammar in the old King James Bible that has made people miss what Ephesians 4 verses 11 and 12 have always said. What this specifically says is the point of congregational leaders is to equip all of the other Christians to serve. A pastor, in other words, is not a professional service provider. He's a coach on the team. He's a coach who plays on the field along with his teammates. He is not a service provider who goes out to find them and serve them in whatever way they wish. We have a job collectively to do together. And if the church is envisioned, and in some cases it has specifically been reinvented that way to suit American needs and desires, will never fulfill the purpose of Jesus. No names mentioned because every church and every pastor has its struggles, but decades ago I read of a very well-known church that had a large, beautiful sign outside the, pastor's, the lead pastor's office, and it said this, who is our customer and what does he want? That's a great question for business, but a lousy question for the church because it re invents pastors as service providers. Folks, this isn't Chick-fil-A. And I love Chick-fil-A. Please understand the analogy, but if you go to Chick-fil-A and say, today I'd like to cook. I'd like to help fry the chicken. The chicken's amazing. I'd like to be part of producing it. They're going to, I don't know what they're going to do. They're so nice. They'll put it to you gently, but they're not going to let you cook. They're probably going to throw you off the property saying, my pleasure, all the way back to your car. Chick-fil-A is an extraordinary little restaurant, but it exists to serve its customer. The church does not. In the church, there are no customers. There are only Christians. There are only members of the body of Christ who have been called to serve one another so that each one can mature and each one can grow up while the body collectively goes and shares the gospel of Christ to make other disciples of people who currently don't know Jesus, which are then brought into the body that begins to serve other Christians and collectively take all of those gifts to present the gospel to the world that needs them. What I'm trying to say simply is this, every Christian should serve someone else and each one of us has a God-given function. There's not one of you here who's a Christian who is called to this church that has not been given some gift by Jesus for the good of other people. It may be just a few people. It may be a ministry utterly unknown to others except the people you serve. It may never show up in the bulletin. It may never be talked about in a sermon when the pastor tries to encourage the good things that he sees happening in the congregation, but that was your gift from Jesus to you, and it was intended. The gifts of Jesus are a little different. They're given to you, and they are yours, but they're not for you. The gifts that Jesus gave you are intended for the good, for the blessing of someone else. Let me show this to you, verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. What will happen when all of that is happening? What will happen when leaders are equipping and saints are serving? Verse 13 tells us what will happen. 
to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. There it is. You want to know Jesus? Start serving other people. You'll learn more about Jesus in a month of serving others than you will in a private life with God that nobody knows about. That has to come first. Bible reading and prayer have to come first, but from the overflow of what you have with your Father, you go out and serve others. That's when you'll learn things about Jesus that you otherwise would never know. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, what does God have in mind for you? This, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. How needed are you, individual Christian? Verse 16 tells you, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body, what's it say? Grow so that it builds itself up in. What that means is there are no spare parts or solo acts in the body of Christ. Every member matters. Every joint, every member of the body belongs to Jesus, was placed there by Jesus, was gifted by Jesus for the collective good of the other members around it. It's so funny that we see this so easily in our physical body and we tolerate it so dramatically in the spiritual body, which is the church. Here's what I mean. If one of your knees blew out, would you spend the rest of the day dragging that foot behind you and telling people, no, it's okay, I got another knee just like it on the other side, it's fine. You care about any member of the body that goes missing, stops working? The only reason I'm able to stand up here is because an innumerable number of individual parts of my body are collectively working. If my ankles say, you know, he's a little chunky, we've had enough, we quit, and went off the job in the next one minute, we'd have a medical crisis here. If, God forbid, your hand was severed, my guess would not be that you would calmly look at your severed hand and say, well, we had a good run. It was with me for 34 years, and I have another one. Fortunately, my good hand, my strong hand is still with me. No, you would take, probably, this is a little gruesome, but I bet this is what you would do. If you didn't pass out immediately, you would take the hand you had left to pick up the hand that was severed, and you would use your mouth to scream for help. You would galvanize the entire body to help the part that was injured. So it is in the church. When each place, each part of the body takes its rightful place under the head and the king that is Jesus, recognizes its role in the body, which will not be like everybody else's, but does its part, Paul says, the result is growth, the result is maturity, and the proof and the outcome is love. What I'm trying to tell you is this, we were saved to serve. And the result of all of these efforts I've been telling you about is this, we each grow to maturity in Christ. Some Christians never make their connection. Because they've re-envisioned the church as a service organization that exists primarily to bless and to help them, 
rather than see themselves collectively and individually as part of the body of Christ that was been deployed by God into the world to serve Jesus. Most Christians never grow the way they would if they would make the effort to join hands with other Christians, serve Jesus together, stick together, and give your individual gifts, be they great or small, in the service of the gospel of Jesus. I'm trying to tell you this, to know God deeply, we must serve others humbly. Paul says in verse 13 and 14, the goal is maturity until we all attain to the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And he says that the proof of that maturity is love. Verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Of course, we understand this in our physical families. Every mature, every loving, every half-sensible parent invites and instructs and expects that their kids will help and serve somebody else as soon as they're able. When does that usually start? When they're about two, usually. As soon as a kid can reliably walk and understand instructions and be aware of other humans in the world, we give that child a job to do. It may be as simple as clearing your plate. You're not going to let the two-year-old cook. He'll burn the house down. But you intend for him to know how to cook someday. You put expectations on that individual, oh so young, oh so immature member of the family because you know that in giving them a responsibility and giving them the care of other people and little tasks that will show love to other people, that's exactly how he's going to grow up. Simply... Stated, to grow up spiritually, we need to serve others. If you're engaged in this church, but your primary place in it right now is being loved and being blessed and being taught and being served by others, let me invite you gently, lovingly, in the name of Christ, to invite you to take a step forward. To make yourself available to Jesus to have a conversation with the pastor, to join a small group, to inquire about a ministry team. That's three ways that this can practically get started. You can talk to a pastor, you can get involved in a small group, or you can inquire about a ministry team. Any one of those three, all three of those are good. If you choose even one of them, that will put you immediately in touch with others. I won't mention their name because I wouldn't embarrass them for the world, but a family that has been here for several years has just in the last six months started serving others. Their growth has been exponential. The transformation in their character, their schedule, their attitude is astonishing, and I think they're more surprised than anybody. They've been telling me over the last several weeks, this, this is incredible, and I'm thinking to myself, I know, I've been trying to tell you for five years. That's all it takes. Not because I'm smart, not because this church is perfect, but because Jesus is in charge. Let me invite you to stand up and to take the back of your bulletin, and here's what we're going to do in closing. We're just going to read Scripture together, and I want you to hear what kind of church we should be. By God's grace, to a certain measure, what kind of church we already are. Look at the back of your bulletin, and let's all stand together.
And if you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, this is your invitation. If you know Jesus is your Savior and you think this might be your church home, this is your invitation to take your next step. This is the life we're pursuing. Let's read together. This is just a list all across the New Testament of how we're supposed to live together. So don't read the Scripture reference. Just read the phrase with me. These are our instructions as we serve others. Be at peace with each other. Wash one another's feet. Love one another. 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 Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Love one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. Instruct one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. When you come together to eat, wait for each other. Have equal concern for each other. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Serve one another in love. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, you will be destroyed by each other. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Carry each other's burdens. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Do not lie to each other. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Teach one another. Admonish one another. Make your love increase and overflow for each other. Love each other. Encourage each other. Encourage each other. Build each other up. Encourage one another daily. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Encourage one another. Do not slander one another. Don't grumble against each other. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. Live in harmony with one another. Love each other deeply. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Love one another. 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 Jesus, those are your instructions. That's who we can be. We desire to be. Give us the grace to obey. In Christ's name. Amen.